Hello and welcome to this episode of Shoulder to Shoulder, where we strive to grow in love of the Lord and each other. I'm Megan Silas. And I'm Pam Marvin. And we welcome you back to this episode. We are, uh, as always, excited to be in each other's presence and uh, excited to be in the presence of you in the sound waves. (laughs) Right, right. So we're really... Most of all, she and I are happy to be together to share our love of the Lord and each other, obviously, the tagline. But uh, more than that, we we love to have our conversations about our Lord and to share it with you. And we hope today that it will bless you and just warm your hearts and give you food for the journey. Yeah. And so a lot of times, you know, uh, we're doing topics that uh, we have sort of planned ahead of time and maybe aren't about current events or anything like that, because I think we both like to make episodes that are going to be something that somebody can listen to, you know, a year from now and it's still going to be relevant. Uh, But every now and then we like to dip our toe into the waters of something that's more timely and topical. And so today we're going to be doing that. Um, So for those of you who aren't Catholic, because we do have some non-Catholic listeners. I know that for a fact. And so uh, this may be a little bit of insider baseball today because it is very much about what's going on in the Catholic Church. But I think it's really important for everybody, all Christians, to actually keep an eye on what's going on in the Catholic Church. Because the reality is, regardless of what you think regarding um Catholic Church versus various Protestant denominations, it is still the largest Christian body. Uh, right, in right. the world. And so it, it matters uh, what the church does. Even if you are not Catholic, what the Catholic church does matters to the way Christians are viewed in the world and the way Christians view themselves often over the course of time. So today we're going to be talking about uh, a pastoral letter that was put out recently by Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas. We love our fellow Texans here. That's right. Um, but I think it's a, just a beautiful example of a bishop truly being a good father to his flock. Um, but before we get on that, uh, what have you been up to since the last time we saw each other, Pam? Oh, so much. But the, the, the biggest news of the week is, <laughs> of the week is I got a new kitty. <laughs> oh, okay. My daughter, when she moved out, she took our cat with it. And I uh-huh. was like, that's really leaving a void. I really enjoy having a cat around. So mm-hmm. a coworker of mine had one available. And he's been awesome. He's just okay. been All right, hilarious. What's the cat's and, name? Okay, this is too funny. All it right. is Chupa. Chupa? So that Chupa. sounds like maybe a Mexican Right, right. So we flavor. watched a family movie on, um, let's see, it was Saturday night with my daughters and her fiance, one of the daughters. And it was like a little family movie called mm-hmm. Chupa. Okay. And it was um, wonderful right up my alley. It was kind of in Spanish and English. And it was about little kids who find this pup of a chupacabra. Oh. That was very cute <laughs> uh-huh. and cuddly and all of that. <laughs> and uh, my daughter suggested, Mom, you should name so him Chupa. Yeah. And it stuck. It That's just stuck. Cute. Yeah, what, yeah. What does he look like? He's a gray tabby, a beautiful gray tabby mm-hmm. with a little tufts on his ears, like he looks okay. like a bobcat in a way. Uh-huh. And doesn't know a stranger, the most confident cat I've mm-hmm. ever seen. Just nice. loves everybody in my house, acts like he's bonded to every single one of us from the moment he stepped in our That's house. That's rare. It is. Yeah. <laughs> so on the on the like dog 
cat divide? Oh. Are you heavy on the cat, or where do you are you like you like? I am both so or? divided. Okay. I, I think I will always have one of each. Okay. I really, I just love animals too. I, I want to broaden out to chickens one day too. I've told you this before. Oh yeah, yeah. I look forward. I have a friend who has chickens, and they're her pets. I chickens have become princess. a thing. Man, so chickens thing. are popular. They are having their day. They you are, know, as and they should. Yeah, I think it was really COVID, honestly, that yes. really like brought up the whole chicken thing because people started to have more time and, and and I think they have um, relaxed a lot of um, village rules regarding having chickens even if you live in town or and so people are just starting a little to bit more take care of that yeah but I have to admit I didn't grow up with pets at all mm. so my mom is a super clean freak I think we've probably mentioned that a few times on the air and so I think um she just really, really didn't want to keep up with the cleaning that uh, dogs and cats yes. um, require. So I didn't grow up with them around, but I really appreciate watching them. Um, but I have to admit, on the cleanliness side of things, the <laughs> exposed bottom area, <laughs> when I see dogs and cats sitting on furniture yeah, and stuff sometimes true. gives me a little oh i can see i'm that. thinking you know i wouldn't let my kids yes. sit butt naked on my furniture <laughs> so Ew. you know Ew. i can see that but i, I have to say that i think this is also a product of me being an empty nester okay. after 31 years uh-huh. so you need me, some little mother babies i you know i got a mother okay I mean, well part of who i'm I just am gonna tell you that i i am going to call you out if you start like oh please do you know Really referring never, to them like they are children. I've never been that way. And I've been uh-huh. a little bit like, you know, about that because yeah. I've seen it take off in certain communities where they are, act, they're, they're encouraged to have pets instead of babies. And that is so highly offensive to me. So, mm. yeah, I mean, I understand the desire for, to care for another being and, you know, a place to, uh, put your affection and things like that. And I also recognize that, you know, pets are a lot more straightforward than human beings. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the commitment is much less and uh, the pushback that you are going to get hardly. is quite a bit less. And let's not forget the positive electrons that they give off the dogs and cats, I believe. Uh, okay. too. Yeah. I don't really know anything about that. No. You're, you're much more into that. But so in my prayer chair this morning, it was great. I got uh-huh. my dog on my side, not on my lap, but on my at my side okay. with a covered chair, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> okay. And then the cat crawled up on the top of the chair. So I've got the cat behind me and the dog by my side. And I'm like, this is good. St. Francis would approve. All right. Well, welcome to the Marvin family. Chupa. Chupa. (laughs) So since the last time I saw you, I went on a trip to my family's home uh, in in northern New York. uh, Was it it cool a little bit? Yes. So I flew into Plattsburgh, uh, New York, and I walked off the plane and it was 68 degrees and sunny at like 1 And like no humidity. Yeah. It was. Wow crazy you know I, I literally thought to myself i may not feel this again for three four months you mm-hmm. know and, and it really was um interesting how there was almost this regression of feeling within me of like oh this is what i remember as a child you know and, and to kind of feel that sort of excitement of of being a, my child self yes um, yes and I really appreciated um, 
kind of getting in touch with some little uh, things that are very typical of Northern New York. So, um, for example, for example, my sister picked me up and my brother and I actually flew from Tampa on the same flight. So we, we came up from Florida together and then my sister picked us up. So it was just the three of us, my three, you know, my two siblings and me. And I don't know, honestly, I can't even remember the last time that happened where it was just the three of us without any parents. Did you get a picture of the three of you together? Oh my goodness. I don't think we did. No. Isn't that terrible? But anyway, so we're on the way home and. Um, it's like an hour and 20 minute drive or something like that, or hour and a half. And I'm one of those people who always has to go to the bathroom on the way home. Like, you know, I just, I'm always having to use the restroom. So anyway, um, we found a place to stop at a, as a rest station, which is like this, it's kind of like, how would I describe it? Um, you know, like convenience stores that are really typical of a, of an area. You know how sometimes there's like a little gas station convenience store yes. shops that are very mm-hmm. typical of an area. So this is a, a little shop called Stewart's, which is this like very typical of Northern New York. They have a dairy and they sell their own ice cream and everything. And, and you know, they have all these like yummy little things. But when we stopped there, I uh, happened to, when I was looking on the map of how to, you know, where to stop. I noticed that there was a cheese shop like really close to it (laughs) that had like a gift shop. And so I was like, let's go to the cheese shop. So we went to the cheese shop and they had two things which were so quintessentially Northern New York to me. The one, the first one being cheese curds. Yeah. Okay. okay so cheese curds, I, I have become a little more popular, I think. Right. And Freddy's so, here. So, Brian yeah, Station, right. Yeah. But the cheese curds that we tend to get like here in Texas, I've tried them like from the grocery store or whatever, are nothing like the ones up there because the ones up there literally have just been packaged. Like sometimes they're even still warm Mm. from the processing and they have this very interesting quality where they're squeaky. Like like there's something (laughs) when you chew them, they kind of squeak. Oh my and goodness. so we, growing up, we called them squeaky cheese. <laughs> so we got a big bag of cheese squeaky curds, cheese. big yeah. bag of cheese, in fact, which was the last bag that they had. And after we left, they put a door, a sign on the door that said, we're out of cheese curd. That's like how big a deal it is here. It's wow. like, you know, you get the cheese curds when they're fresh and then they're out and there's no more for that day. But then they also had um, maple cream. So this is, so maple syrup, most people think of Vermont when they think of maple syrup, but actually Northern New York has a lot of maple production as well. Um, And so maple cream is basically maple syrup that has been whipped so that it's thick and you can spread it. Mm. And it's so good. Oh my goodness. So anyway, those are my little. honey. Mm -hmm. So it was good, good to to get back up there. And and it was good family time. It was really good family time to come together as adults without spouses, you know, so my parents and my three siblings and that was it. And uh, yeah, so there was some good conversations and, and it, it was, it was very nice. Wonderful. So, anyway. Sounds good. Well, let's All get right. to it. I'm, let's get I'm to anxious it. to hear about this. I mean, so if you're listening, we are going to be talking about the pastoral letter that uh, Bishop Strickland out of Tyler recently put out. Megan has read it and I have not. So I think that's uh, kind of makes for the colorfulness of our, our, our discussion. So let's go, Megan. Well, so it is written, Bishop Strickland wrote it because he sees 
the synod and synodality that is about to really ramp up um, in October. And he perceives that there are some potential errors that may be promulgated uh, through this process. Uh, He's concerned about um, where this synod may be taking the church. And so in response to that, instead of just waiting to see what happens and then responding after that, he really wanted to get ahead of it, get ahead of it and give people the heads up and give them clear teachings from the church so that people won't get confused Mm -hmm. when they maybe start hearing things that are confusing or seem contrary to the faith. And then, you know, they're like, is this right? I don't know. It's coming out of Rome. It's, it seems to be approved by a lot of bishops and cardinals and the the Pope. Pope, Mm -hmm. And there's so much confusion that can result with that. And so what I really appreciate is one of the things that we've been struggling with in our leadership is clarity You know, there's a lot of times where you're like, well, they didn't really contradict teachings. They didn't say anything really new or, but they weren't clear and they left like this space for conjecture and things like that. And so this letter is an attempt to be very clear, concise, and direct about concerns that he has, which will impact his flock. Okay, so I am going to say right now, I wonder how prophetic it's going to be. So stay tuned. We may have a follow-up podcast if it ends up to be somewhat yeah. prophetic in nature. We shall see. Okay. So um, I don't, we're not going to go through and read the whole thing because uh, it'd be a little long to do that. But the point, or the part I wanted to focus on is that he puts forward seven different issues. Oh, sorry, wait, not seven, eight. Eight different issues that he sees that may be an something that, no, sorry, it's seven. I'm, I was right the first time, seven. That he sees coming down the road that may cause confusion and he wants to be very clear about. And so I thought maybe we could just kind of go over these seven and just talk a little briefly about each okay. one and, and, and how we sort of see that. And, um, you know, if we feel like we think that's going to happen, if we don't think it's going to happen, if how we feel about, you know, what Bishop Strickland had to say about it and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, just uh, get at discussion. But uh, for those of you who maybe aren't really very abreast of like what's going on in the church, let me just uh, give a little brief explanation about what the synod on synodality is. So this is a meeting of, not just bishops, but also some lay people, some priests. There's a whole group of people that have been gathered in. And, and, and this, the sort of diversity of this group is quite a bit more significant than we've ever seen for synods in the past. Um, and that's by design. Right. And it is the result of a actually a three-year process. This is the second year, really. The first year was where they were gathering um, information from listening groups at parishes across the world. So they had all these listening groups and they were supposed to be having meetings and, and, and kind of gathering up information about how the church is feeling. But it wasn't just the church. They actually wanted to get information from people who had left the church, non-Christians, about how they thought 
the church was doing and what they thought the direction of the church going forward should be. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of consolidated all this stuff into a working document, which is now what in October is going to start being discussed. The, the issues brought forward on, um, in these listening sessions and now which have been compiled in this working document. But already there's been controversy about the working document because the working document seems to very significantly be skewed towards some more liberal concerns about, uh, you know, things like um, same-sex attraction and, and uh, transgenderism and women in the church and all these sort of hot-button issues. Uh, and it doesn't seem to have a lot of input from more, say, traditionally-minded Catholics. And so that skew already has put up some warning signals that there's a bit of potentially an agenda here. Um, So that's where we're at. Uh, This meeting is going to start in mid-October and it'll be two years. There'll be one this October and then one next October. And then after that, it'll conclude. And I assume come out with some document. So that's where we're at with the synod and synodality. So um, Bishop Strickland in his letter, I want to read this little part he says right before he speaks of the, the, the seven points. He says, as your spiritual father, let me just stop with that right now and say, what a beautiful thing for him to claim his role as spiritual father. Cause I really feel like a lot of times the bishops don't really take that mantle on in a full, robust way. Right. And let's give it a little deeper understanding of that, too. That's like he has responsibility for his flock's souls. That's right. a huge responsibility. Yeah. And that's where he's coming from. That point, this is my responsibility. And if I shirk this, mm-hmm. my demise may be awful. Right. And the reality is, is in his role as bishop, he is the teaching authority of his see. He has not just the right, but the responsibility to teach his flock the truths of the Catholic faith. And so he's doing it, you know, unambiguously. So as your spiritual father, I fear it is important to reiterate the following basic truths that have always been understood by the church from time immemorial and emphasize that the church exists not to redefine matters of faith, but to safeguard the deposit of faith as it has been handed down to us from our Lord himself through the apostles and the saints and martyrs. Again, hearkening back to St. Paul's warning to the Galatians, any attempts to pervert the true gospel message must be categorically rejected as injurious to the bride of Christ and her individual members. Bride of Christ being the church, church. which also being us, the laity, we are the church. Right, absolutely. All right, so number one, Christ established one church, the Catholic Church, and therefore only the Catholic Church provides the fullness of Christ's truth and the authentic path to his salvation for all. Of us. I want to pause there too, because it's come up a lot recently. Yeah, we're going to pause after everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I'm going to jump in, is a better okay. way to say it. It's really come up a lot lately about the fullness of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I both come from different type of not Catholic backgrounds. Right. Yeah. Um, somewhat educated. You were a little bit more than I was. But when I was talking to um, 
a friend who is having really issues with the Catholic faith mm-hmm. right now. And, and it's just so interesting to me. To, I was like, well, okay. So baptized Catholic behaving like a Protestant. Okay. Um, home group prayer because things are so bad in the church. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my comments to her and to everyone that may be listening about my, why I'm in the Catholic church, this fullness of truth that we have in the catechism that teaches these truths mm-hmm. gives us more understanding. And I need more understanding. Right. I may not be as holy as some of these evangelicals that, I mean, and I say that with all the love of my heart and such sincerity that they have such a close and great relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But there's this whole component of his teachings mm-hmm. that they are devoid of. I needed those teachings to draw closer to him. Right. I need the sacraments. Right. Okay. And it's important to remember that the only reason that anybody has any of the teachings of Jesus Christ is because the church he established wrote <laughs> the words that he spoke. Right, right. And, and so know, one day we need to have this discussion too on another podcast because I get this argument a lot of times. No, the, many of them started all at the same time. And I don't know how to refute that. So that's, that's for another time, Megan. Yeah. For another time. But the what I, of the yeah, Christian one church. thing I think we do need to recognize, though, I like to focus on the term the bride of Christ. Yes. Jesus is not a polygamist. There is one bride of Christ. The church he established on his apostles and specifically on Peter as the rock and which then continues down down through history through apostolic succession you know we just read at mass this past weekend about how peter was given the keys to the kingdom and i think we don't really think enough about those words what you bind on earth is bound in heaven what you loo- what you buy what you loose on earth is loosed in heaven that amount of authority He's saying that heaven itself is going to pay attention to what you say. Like that is a level of authority that he placed on Peter, which then the very understanding that the church has then passed that same authority down. They're allowed to do that. Why? Because Jesus himself gave that authority at the very beginning. And that the, if you read the earliest retreat, uh, writings of the church, they understood that this was how they were meant to evangelize the world through the authority given through Jesus Christ. And so to understand the reason that this is being brought up by Strickland is because there is this move towards this kind of one religion we all have different paths, but, you know, you're okay, I'm okay. You know, we can all reach salvation through means as long as we have sincere hearts and this, that, or the other. And that's just simply not the teachings of the Catholic faith. Now, as a, you know, anybody who's a baptized Christian and with a valid baptism is part of the body of Christ to some degree, maybe not perfectly conform to it, not perfectly member of it if they deny parts of it. But but you must at least be part of the church to 
be assured of salvation. And so that's the goal. We want souls to be saved. And because Christ, God himself, who came to earth, established a means for that to happen through his church, that's what we preach. And so when something's preached otherwise, Strickland's saying, no, you've got to say no to that. As much as our merciful hearts may want everybody to come to heaven, no matter what they do or say or believe, that's just not what God taught when he was on earth walking among us. That's right. His justice will prevail. Truly his justice, which people don't think about. Yeah, and, and honestly, his justice will prevail on Catholics who teach error. Amen. All right. You want me to read the second one? Read the second one. Okay. Number two. The Eucharist and all the sacraments are divinely instituted, not developed by man. The Eucharist is truly Christ's body and blood, soul, divinity. And to receive him in communion unworthily, i.e. in a state of grave or unrepentant sin, is a devastating sacrilege for the individual and for the church. And that comes from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the famous thing, you know, whoever does, you know, receives the body of Christ unworthily, you know, brings condemnation on himself. Mm. And whoever does not discern the body and blood of Christ, you know. Yeah, and this year of Eucharistic revival, see. just uh, it's really brought it back to me. This is one of the main hooks for me for the Catholic Church mm-hmm. to know that it was in completely different, you know, to have such a um, Christocentric meal to help to bring us closer to him because he said, I will be with you till the end of time. Mm-hmm. And I believe that meant in the Holy Eucharist right. through the Catholic Church. Yeah, but I think we need to speak explicitly about why he's saying this because okay. he's not just saying this to reaffirm the the, the, the teachings presence. of the church right. that Christ okay. is present in the Eucharist. It really, that's honestly, that, that's very important. And, and the, the second part makes doesn't matter if the first part isn't true. Like the reality is if Christ isn't truly present in the Eucharist, who cares who receives him because it's just a piece of bread. Correct. So that point of the loftiness to which we hold the Eucharist as being Christ himself is the reason why we cannot allow some people to receive him because it's not good for them to receive him who is all holy and all beautiful and all wonderful to receive him in a place where they are in grave sin because the scripture clearly says that that will not be a remedy to you, but actually will heap condemnation on you. And so the move then here, what he's projecting is possible in the synod of synodality is the idea that for certain sins, namely divorced without nullification of marriage and remarried that you could receive communion, even though you haven't gotten into a normalized state with marriage or those who are in sexual relationships that are in a state of mortal sin, in a state of mortal sin, as according to what the church teaches, which would be, listen to me, any sexual act that occurs outside of valid marriage between a man and a woman (laughs) So you can use your imagination for all the things and also 
any sexual act that occurs within marriage that is closed to life through acts of contraception. These things are defined and have always been defined by the Catholic Church as mortal sins, sins that remove God's grace from your soul. And they can only be remedied with confession. The beauty is we have confession. We have the remedy. You can right. get right with the Lord and then go and bring yourself back to his okay. table. So I'm glad you said that because it's going to be one of my questions is like, why do you think that uh, Bishop Strickland's writing this and you, you nailed it then? It was because they are considering allowing people, yeah. especially in that state, let's say, of mortal sin to receive Holy Communion. Right, and again, it comes or back. It could it be just everybody in general? No, everybody's welcome. Let's have yeah, or some, yeah, they have yeah. said something like Protestant spouses of Catholics. Uh, you know, and so, that's you know okay. that speaks to me. You know, I have a Protestant spouse, but I would never want him to receive the Eucharist if he didn't come to the fullness of acceptance of right. the Church and and her teachings and come into full communion with the Catholic Church. Like, I'm not going to grasp for something. Because it would make me feel good when it's contrary to the teachings. And, you know, you often hear how um, some people may view this as um, exclusionary. But we have to say, no, this is an act of love to say when you know what you truly consume, that makes it beautiful. But when you don't, that's grave matter to, to consume it unworthily. Right. And, you know, the reality is, is that we use the term communion for a reason. It's meant to show unity, unity of belief. And when that unity doesn't exist, we're lying with our bodies. Yeah. And that's, that's a problem. And, it, and it, 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 it's, I like the fact that he says it's not just a problem for the individual. It's a problem for the whole body. Right. Because it doesn't, it, it damages all of us. And it undermines the belief in the Eucharist if we don't take it that seriously, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Which kind of talking about the the marriage and you know people not married in the church or divorce divorced is a great segue into number three. You ready right. for number three? All right, let's read number three. Of course, that means I have to put in my pin code. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number three: the sacrament of matrimony is instituted by God. Through natural law, God has established marriage as between one man and one woman, faithful to each other for life and open to children. Humanity has no right or true ability to redefine marriage. Though they try. Though they try. The governments do. (laughs) Right. And, And I think it's important to also mention that we shouldn't be accepting of an end run around this. And when I say, what I mean by an end run is to say, well, we're not going to call it marriage. We're going to call it a civil union um, or a special relationship or something like that. We're going to call it something different that has all the exterior sort of behaviors that should be reserved for marriage. But we're just going to give it another name and then we're going to say, well, we didn't we didn't approve marriage. So what I'm hearing is and this is what I've. I think is the blessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Know, giving it's a the blessing, blessing for same sex unions yeah. or I guess it could also, that could still fall also at a blessing for 
Catholics married outside the church? I don't know. It could. It could. Yeah, potentially for sure. Um, and I think it's important to understand what we're doing here. Like I, you, to bless something that you have clearly defined as sinful behavior basically says you're a total hypocrite that you don't really believe what you teach because how can you bless sin? Those two things are literally mutually exclusive. Blessing doesn't come through the disobedience to God's will. Never in scripture do we see disobedience to God's will as the means for blessing. And so if we behave in that way as a church, we behave contrary to the way God behaves. And that's certainly not what we're called to. I got it. I'm reading it for number four. You're gone. Okay. Every human person is created in the image and likeness of God, male or female, and all people should be helped to discover their true identities as children of God and not supported in a disordered attempt to reject their undeniable biological and God-given identity. Well, amen to that. That's just so heartbreaking in this culture. I think everybody, there's not many people of goodwill that would ever disagree with this one. I, I, I truly believe that. And yet there are so many people disagreeing with it. So are you saying then that they all are of ill will? Or lacking in goodwill. Yes, I am. Because See, a person of goodwill and honest, mm-hmm. honest intellectual thinking to rewrite the biology and play God is just unthinkable. I mean, right. in my little brain, it's just really unthinkable to rewrite, to try and attempt to rewrite and literally mut- mutilate mm-hmm. what God has given. Yeah, I think I take a little bit broader view of it because I think there is been so much deception that it's not that people necessarily are of ill will, but they have been so deceived in their understanding of what a human right. person is right. that they, they think that they are supporting something that's going to be good for somebody. I mean, you hear these stories. So I'm not necessarily saying they're ill will. I'm, they're just not formed. Yeah. But to say they're lacking in goodwill, says, you know, not, okay, let's, let's take the example of a parent, <laughs> a parent who has a kid who's telling them that, you know, they are really the other sex. And then the parent who loves their kids so much and wants their good and wants to do anything that's going to help them. And then they are told by psychiatrists and social workers and teachers, if you don't support them in this, if you don't go along with this, then you are killing your child. Like this literally is happening. They are telling them that your child will murder themselves. They will commit suicide if you don't support them in this. This is a grand deception. Right, exactly. Grand deception. So my point being is we have to come to understand how people have gotten to this point where they're promoting this. Some people truly are just evil. They're evil and they were are working with the enemy to yeah. steal God-given identities from his children. Now that's definitely true, but not everybody is there. But the the reality that we need to hold fast it's to It's misplaced compassion, 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the real idea that we need to hold fast to is that God knows what he's doing. And when he made you with that body, he made you 
because he wanted you to be you. He knew you before all time. He knew you before you were in your mother's womb. He knew exactly what parts you were going to have, and he formed them out of love. And when we try to deform them, we are rejecting God's love for us in our very creation, and we're denying ourselves the, uh, the identity that is the only true path to joy and peace and happiness. Mm, mm, mm. And when people promote that being stolen from other people, it is, it's like killing them. Even though they killing say they're twice, doing it to keep yeah. them alive, they're killing the person God created. But yes. the beautiful thing is, is that you can never actually kill what's God's and he can restore. So even for people who have gone down this path and have tried, you know, have, you know, experienced the, the surgeries and the transformations and things like that, you can still regain who God created you to be. And so there's hope there, but there's only going to be hope for, for people to find the truth of themselves if the people who understand the truth speak it and are uncompromising in it, no matter the cost. That's right. Just speak it with love, people. Speak it with love, my brothers and sisters. Yeah. Be brave. You got to be, be brave. brave. Yeah. All yeah. right. Number I love how Bit Strickland's being brave. He is being brave. Number five. Oh, am I reading? Or are you reading? I can read. It. Okay. Sexual activity outside of marriage is always gravely sinful and cannot be condoned, blessed, or deemed permissible by any authority inside the church. Now, why are they, why are they trying to slip this one in there? Well, I, well we already talked about this when we talked about the Eucharist. This idea uh, that you, okay. you know, yeah. this is I'm about rolling my blessings. eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And, you know, it's interesting. I read recently, um, there was an interview with Pope Francis in the Portuguese uh, Jesuit magazine. And it was kind of a question and answer session. And somebody kind of asked him a question about this where he was like, you know, what if a person, you know, who is same-sex attracted and just really, really loves the Lord, loves, wants to live, he wants to like be Catholic and, and but just really doesn't feel that their lifestyle is a sin. So they really, truly don't believe it. So can we really say that they're being, um, you know, sinful if in their hearts they don't believe it's to be true? And, you know, and he asked, the guy asked, you know, is Jesus's call to chastity like a call for all? And it was very interesting how Pope Francis answered this because he starts by saying Jesus's call is a call for all, but he doesn't say the call to chastity. He says his call to be part of his church. And it's the, then he goes on to start talking about how the church is open to all and welcomes all. And that like we can't expect that somebody is just going to be able to flip on a dime and, and be, you know, perfect. That part I agree with. Absolutely. You know, there's going to be things that you struggle with. Every one of us is going to have our sins that we struggle to overcome, that we constantly are falling short and having to seek repentance and everything in order to grow in holiness. Everybody's got that, no matter what your thing is. Mm -hmm. But I would say the church actually isn't open to all. And the people it's not open to are those who refuse to be obedient to her teachings. 
It's not that the church rejects them. They reject the church. And everybody has the right to reject Christ's church, just as everybody has the right to embrace his church and be part of it. But you don't get to come in here and say, I'm Catholic, but I get to define what it means to be a Catholic, not the church herself. That is not being part of the church. And I would say we should not be welcome to those who want to deny the teachings, change the faith according to their desires instead of according to Christ's commands. True. So true. Okay. Number six. Your read. The belief that all men and women will be saved regardless of how they live their lives, a concept commonly referred to as universalism, is false and is dangerous, and it contradicts what Jesus tells us repeatedly in the gospel. Jesus says we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. He has given us the way through his grace to victory over sin and death through repentance and sacramental confession. It is essential that we embrace the joy and hope as well as the freedom that come from repentance and humbly confessing our sins. Through repentance and sacramental confession, every battle with temptation and sin can be a small victory that leads us to embrace the great victory that Christ has won for us. Mm. Okay, what's behind that one? Okay, so he really is talking about this universalism idea that... All shall be saved. That that oh, term. Like there's all no shall hell be saved. There's no hell. Okay, all okay. shall be saved. Eventually, all should be saved. And there's two reasons why this really bothers me. <laughs> One of them is because in believing it, it guarantees that all will not be saved, <laughs> because it leads to this idea that you do don't have any. You don't have to do anything to be saved so why would you it's just easy peasy i'm just going to be yeah. me and do whatever the heck i want See, that has so many faults on even on its surface yeah. about free will yeah but the the, the, se- the second thing here that really really bothers me about it is if all shall be saved what's the point of jesus's passion and death and you Let that know one sink in. You that's know a good one how much jesus's passion and death are like these the core of my spirituality. Jesus died, suffered and died. Willingly. Willingly. So that all will be saved? No. So that all would have the chance to be saved? Yes. And if he was just going to blanket it, what's the point? We need to accept him. We need to receive the grace that comes from that cross. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, and this easy, cheap faith, cheap grace that says no matter what you do, no matter what you believe, you're good. You're in. It's not biblical. See, that just sounds like fire insurance. I am good. <laughs> but it's so not biblical. Jesus himself constantly talked about you know being cast into the fire where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth to be thrown into fiery Gehenna are we Christians do we believe the teachings of Jesus Christ because he did not leave this door open he preaches that there's a hell and there are people going to it 
And to preach anything other is a lie that will steal souls from the hand of God, which is the very opposite of what the church is meant to do. Our whole purpose is salvation of souls, to spread the good news. And this is not good news. This is a lie based in false mercy that only leads to damnation to many souls. And we have to call it out for what it is. Amen. Have to. I love your passion, Megan. Right. I just enjoy <laughs> being next to you when you're getting on one of your rolls. Yeah. <laughs> so good. So good. All okay, right. You're next. Number seven. Last one. In order to follow Jesus Christ, we must willingly choose to take up our cross instead of attempting to avoid the cross and suffering that our Lord offers to each of us individually in our daily lives. The mystery of redemptive suffering, i.e. suffering that our Lord allows us to experience and accept in this world and then offer back to him in union with his suffering, humbles us, purifies us, and draws us deeper into the joy of a life lived in Christ. That is not to say that we must enjoy or seek out suffering, but if we are united to Christ, as we experience our daily sufferings, we can find the hope and joy that exists amidst the suffering and persevere to the end in all our suffering. Amen. That's such a good one. We could do a whole other show on redemptive suffering. Yeah. I mean, and Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II, Mm -hmm. you know, wrote a beautiful encyclical on redemptive suffering. Oh, yes. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. So good. Like uh, we can have to do that one. Yeah. So, but I mean, in the way this sort of dovetails to just what I was talking Mm -hmm. about and this understanding of Christ went through a passion for our sins but just as he said, the servant is not greater than the master. We will also undergo our passion in this life as we walk in this valley of tears, as we experience sinfulness in our own lives and the sin of others. That's going to lend itself to suffering. But that the fact is, is that the cross of Jesus Christ gives meaning to that suffering. So no longer is suffering just a horrible mm-hmm. event that has no purpose other than our own pain. Now it has value. It has great power when united to Jesus' suffering on the cross. And we lose a great opportunity when we try to run away from or deny the suffering that the Lord allows in our lives for our sanctification and for our witness to the world. So this sense of easy life, we want it all to be good. You know, we want it all to be comfy and, you know, run away from the things that are hard. Because a lot of these teachings that, he's concerned are going to be impacted by the synod. Really the, what there are a lot of the changes that could happen speak to this idea of like, well, that's too hard. We can't yeah, ask yeah, it of you. That's too hard. That's suffering. That's whatever. And so, so we're not going to teach that stuff anymore because we don't want you to have to suffer. Okay. So each one of these seven points, you know, I, I kind of go back to that root sin kind of thing. Mm-hmm. This one it's not even pride this time. It's a sensuality. Yeah. It's a comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And we want everybody to be comfortable. Well, if Jesus had stayed comfortable, he wouldn't have died for our sins, right? Right. There would be no redemption. So yeah, there's like this root sin of sensuality. So I'm going to challenge our listeners in this podcast to try and take an inventory of those areas where you get really uncomfortable and go to the Lord and ask, why am I so uncomfortable? Um, do I need to lean into this? Is this part of God's role for me in my life right now? Am I shying away from it or just being avoidance altogether? Because mm-hmm. that's not where God wants us. Right. He wants to embrace the small sufferings. Mm-hmm. And I think when we really do acknowledge 
the reality that there is great power in the suffering that we allow in our lives without trying to fight against it and that we unite to the cross of Jesus Christ, when we acknowledge that that power exists, then maybe we aren't enjoying the suffering, but we can say with Paul, I rejoice in my sufferings because they make up for what is lacking in the cross of Jesus Christ. And what is lacking in the cross of Jesus Christ, I think we, I've mentioned before on other podcasts, is its visibility to the world. Christ isn't on, like on the cross up there right now on the hill of Calvary for us all to see in person, but in his people, how we undergo our suffering can image our savior. The savior that hung on the cross, suffering the sins of others and said, forgive them, father. That's who we're meant to be. I think it's time for a temperature check. Okay, and this is going to be like the end because we've gone know, on. But <laughs> All right, time for check time. Yep. So I was reflecting on my life right after I did the book study on redemptive suffering. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to have a real practical thing of what actually happened to me. You know, right now, I don't even remember what the suffering was. It was an emotional <laughs> suffering. I know how God works, right? right? But I remember God's grace in the moment. So I'd never tried it before to try and give God my sufferings. But mm-hmm. I remember it was, um, I don't know, I feel like maybe it was a bad depression. Maybe there's another, I don't know exactly what the, see, I didn't even remember what the suffering was, but I remember it was very intense. And at that moment, I reached out to the Blessed Mother and said, Mother, I give all this suffering to Jesus hanging on the cross at this moment since he's mm-hmm. outside of space and time. And Megan... I kid you not, I had instant relief. I wasn't like happy, right? but that pain that was inside of me from the suffering, this emotional suffering mm-hmm. I was going through, it just evaporated. It just evaporated. And that was the very first time I ever tried that technique mm-hmm. to offer my sufferings to the Lord. Now, it doesn't happen that way every time for me since, right? but oftentimes... It is very relieving. Yeah. I think when I think about redemptive suffering, the, the moment that it really became, like it was just in this flash, it really became clear to me. I was on retreat at Holy Name Passionist Retreat Center in Houston. And in, in the rooms at uh, that retreat center, there's an image. There's some image, some either a saint or, you know, maybe Christ or, some image in each room. And in the room I happened to be in, it was an image of St. Francis, but it wasn't the image that you usually see where he's like hanging out in a garden with a bird on his shoulder. It was him with his stigmata. Cause St. Francis had the stigmata. That's right. Mm-hmm. And I looked at that and it came to my heart in this really profound way. The most blessed Jesus' saints so often are those that suffer the most, either by circumstances or by direct act of God, like a stigmata, allow this suffering. And I thought to myself, wow, suffering isn't this terrible thing that that the Lord imposes on us. It's a divine invitation to intimacy with Jesus, who Mm. is the suffering servant. That moment 
so changed good. my life. Yes. That was the moment where I recognized. And, and the interesting thing is I was at this retreat. It wasn't a passionist retreat. Wow. It just happened to be at a passionist retreat center. And that is the moment where I began to understand the reality that the passion is my spiritual charism. Yes. Right there. Beautiful. Just Love looking it. at that image of St. Francis and saying, suffering's an invitation. That's right. And that changes everything. It does. Think about the joy that you would have if you feel like this was a gift that all suffering is, a, right. as Therese said, mm-hmm. all suffering is a gift from my Lord so I can yeah. no longer suffer. Yeah. It's yeah. beautiful. Great, Therese. Yeah. All right, I think we should wrap it up. Yeah. That was a, that was a, a, a lengthy longer. one, yeah, but we were I think talking a lot today. Of, yes. Yeah. So we will come back. You know, after the synodality, uh, synod and synodality happens, and you know, we get some data out of it or some reports. You know, we'll we'll touch back on this and see what Absolutely. happened. And you know, let's just hope and pray that there is um, docility and obedience to the Holy Spirit. I think we should all be praying for that mm-hmm. as a church, making you know acts of penance and reparation, and reparation but sure. you know and just acts of hope uh in love that that the leaders of the church and those who are involved in this will will really be true to the gospel Amen. Um, but understanding that no matter what god's truths are eternal and even if visible leadership seems to stray from them it doesn't change the truth of them amen So let us cling to the truth. If this podcast has blessed you today, we ask that you share it or tell a friend about it. Listen together, perhaps. But until next time, please unite. We are united to you in prayer. You remain united to us. All right. Until next time. God bless. God bless.